Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. If I don't like how this podcast goes, I'm going to slam the table and walk out. It seems to be the trend now. It's a lot of things done. It solves all sorts solves of problems. All you gotta do. That's all you gotta do. Slam the table. Somebody tells you no, slam the table and walk out. It's called the no, three-year-old no, no. method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, and joined as always by my fine, fantastic colleagues, um, wow. Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Phil Barker, uh, Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi guys. That was a good one, Nick. I like that. I yeah. try. Yeah. I'm trying to gonna liven it up a yeah. little bit or something, you know, whatever. Uh, before we get started, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. The podcast, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped that you can download on iOS and Android. Uh, we're Barstool Politics on there, so look for our reviews on there. Uh, and then predict it. Uh, if you guys uh, have been tuning in recently or you're a new listener, uh, we've partnered with Predicted, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, super fun. Uh, we use it a lot to uh, you know, look at different uh, aspects of different stories that we discuss every week. Um, really easy, really intuitive, uh, and great for, you know, kind of real-time public opinion. Getting a pulse on where things are at, uh, it's, it's really, it's interesting. You yeah. see things move there that you don't always see in the press. Mm-hmm. What's great for our listeners is uh, if you open up a new account, uh, you'll receive up to, a, up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So uh, if you open up a $20 account, uh, Predictit will match that $20. So you have $40 to uh, check out Predictit. Uh, just use the promo link, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20 uh, and check it out. Free money, Nick. Free money. That's always Thanks good. for free things, Predictit. I'm <laughs> really nasally. Sorry, I'm fighting off a cold. Anyways. So, um, on that note, uh, speaking of uh, diseases and horrible things going on. And storming out of uh, rooms. And storming out of rooms. <laughs> uh, it's just... Why is why we're is still this, shut down? Nick. Why we're, we're still shut down? I, I just assumed Trump's speech would fix everything. As essential <laughs> employees, we're working without pay. And, and then the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer's additional speech didn't fix it—I'm I'm at a loss. Oh, it's yeah. Just with them, the two the scarecrows. Sh- the shutdown shutdown is so dire they had to share a podium. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that was that <laughs> was the visual was really really bad. Uh, oh, all right, let's, should we dive into it? Oh yeah. So President Trump devoted his first prime time Oval Office address of his presidency to generating public support for funding his wall. It was a nine-minute, it was pretty short. I thought it would be yep. even longer than that. Nine-minute speech that really didn't include any new arguments, uh, but he hoped by appealing directly to the American public, he would put pressure on Democrats to fund the wall. 
Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer followed Trump with their own remarks, accusing the president of stoking fear and mocked him for asking taxpayers to foot the bill for a wall that he had long said Mexico would pay for. Another interesting angle of the speech was whether the major broadcast networks would even televise it. They all eventually did, but only after some serious deliberation on the journalistic ethics of doing so. The debate centered on whether it was appropriate to give such a prominent platform to a president whose public remarks, particularly on immigration, have been marked by untruths and misleading claims. Or, or lying, you know, whatever you like. Uh, many and noted that the irony that just prior that's your to, opinion. Yes, just prior to asking for the airtime, Trump had taken to Twitter to label journalists as, quote, the enemy of the people, the real opposition party, and my favorite, favorite crazed lunatics. Love it. <laughs> Gentlemen, so much to break down here. Phil, why don't you start us off? Thoughts, reactions to any and all of it? Um, so, I mean, there's lots of ways to go with it there, but I feel like we should start with the, the speech itself and then yeah. get to the media part of it. The crazy lunatics. So did you, did you watch the, did you watch the speech? I did. All nine okay. minutes. I, I didn't watch it. it. It wasn't, it just wasn't, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't even intrigued by it. <laughs> that's telling, right? I, well, right. So I think that's, I, I think that's the point that I want to make. So David from, I, I sent you this article, yeah. David from wrote in the Atlantic today, an article that I think really got to the heart of this, which is that. Um, the point of something like this, which was pretty, uh, it was framed as, you know, n uh, emergency national security stuff. It was a political speech, right? Yeah. Like he's trying to get his policy um, passed, which is what ties into the controversy about whether the, the networks should have covered it or not. But he's trying to persuade people, right? He's trying to persuade, he's trying to get Congress on his side to give him money um, for this, this wall. But David Frum basically makes the argument that in the first two years of his presidency, Donald Trump has blown any chance he had at being a persuader. Like people are so locked into their viewpoints that, and, and that's what I, I kind of felt last night. Like nobody was gonna be convinced, right? Trump supporters love the idea of a wall. People who are opposed to a wall aren't going to be convinced by Trump, right? Because, it, and so I, it, it really feels, we talked last week a little bit about how it feels like he's sort of backed himself into a corner. It feels like he's lost this battle. And he's he's trying, but but he doesn't have the tools at his at his disposal to actually get Democrats on his side to get the border wall funding. It just feels like this is a battle he's going to lose. And it almost feels like he knows that too, because apparently the the I think it was the Times or the Post this morning said that Trump himself didn't want to do this. You know, it was Stephen Miller and Huckabee Sanders who said you should go do an Oval Office address and convince the people. And he thought that ain't gonna work because uh, I think he knows, like you said, that it's he he can mobilize the base. Same thing about on Thursday, he's going down to the border. Uh, he thought that's not gonna work either, right? I mean, it it's not a really effective political tool when you're as divisive as Trump is. It's effective for rallying his base, right? But yeah. this is a role, and this role, that's not what he needs, right? right? He's got his base already. He's not trying to win an election. He's hes trying to get people in Congress to vote. So he needs he needs Democrats to give, you know, to support his wall proposal. And, and in order for that to happen, people who support Democratic Congress people have to shift their views. And that's the speech that he gave, the clips that I've seen of it, isn't going to it's not going to persuade the american people that this is a good idea what do you think nick i mean i mean the bully pulpit is still something right and and i, mm -hmm. I think you're right phil but it's still the president of the united states addressing the country mm -hmm. you think effective or so what i found striking about both his speech and and the the democrats response was just how ineffective i guess both of them were but i will i 
and this is you know my personal coloring of it, I would think uh, the Democrats' response was less effective. Trump was fairly, for Trump, he was fairly measured in what he said. It, he you know stuck to the teleprompter, didn't go off script, uh, kept it very short and sweet, uh, and framed this as a humanitarian and moral crisis, which I think a lot of people can get behind. Uh, obviously, the base and to some extent, people outside of, of the, the core base. Um, he brought a lot of, you know, quote, statistics, mm -hmm. unquote, uh, that at least on the surface presented. Yeah, I know with the smirk and whatnot, but it's <laughs> it's he's framing it in a way that there's something to it where there's measurable effects to, you know, the consequences of illegal immigration. As opposed to the Democrats, whose response, which was less than five minutes long, which felt like a fucking eternity listening to those two corpses talk, um, was, you know, pretty much someone think of the children. That was their response. They have nothing beyond their... Uh, the, the one point that they made that I'll agree with is that this needs to be separate from the government shutdown. Take immigration out of this fight and reopen the government. And I think, you know, there can be some sort of compromise made. But when you're just framing it as he's lying to you, he's lying to you, he's lying to you. Um, and, you know, he's tear gassing children and, you know, put, I, I, I don't know. It's yeah. it was I, it was weird. <laughs> it's just I, well, I, go I, ahead. I think Democrats can afford to be in that position, though, right? They're, they have their, they are in the winning position in this, like by default, right? So, so Trump has to persuade the, the Democrats. Don't really, I mean, they have to make sure that there's support for for what they're doing, but there's pretty widespread support for that. So, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree that you know, I don't, I didn't, I, having not watched it, I don't have an opinion on who was more convincing. But I, I sort of feel like the Democrats, there's less pressure on them in this situation. I, yeah, I, I'll say this: after the meeting today, where he stormed out and slammed the table and did not sound very presidential, uh, there was, at least the stories that I read, a a coalescence of Republicans and a rallying of Republicans around his position and a solidifying of, of support that we didn't see prior to this. So I'm not necessarily sure that Democrats have as much leverage in this particular situation as they did even a week ago. I think this is going to be a tougher battle than they think. The, the way the Democrats, and I, I don't think either side did a particularly good job last night, so I watched it, and Trump was... It was the same sort of stuff we've seen out of him, but a much more restrained presentation, which is good for him. He's it was good. Stephen Miller. He read a Stephen Miller. Yeah, speech. exactly. Right. Yeah, and he is better when he's on. You know, he's not going from the teleprompter. I will say, you know, to, to the point you made earlier, Nick, what what they did a good job of was picking out individual stories. Mm -hmm. So they talked about individual crimes and rapes and whatnot, and and I wonder whether that will have an effect on the public because when you listen to that, you say, oh, it seems dangerous. That being said, I, you know, the Democrats flipped this and said, it's about, let's negotiate about the wall later, let's get the government open. It, it feels to me like that argument will win the day. Like, okay, let's just put this put the wall aside for now, open the government. That seems to me the more powerful argument right now than, let's give him the wall and open the government. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it could go either way, but I think the Democrats are in a good position to you know hold themselves down and say let's let's do this but we'll see well, i don't know and i think this is where the the david from argument so yeah. you, i mean nick you were pointing out that that trump had statistics and bill you were talking about how he had stories and 
I think with any other president, those things would have been powerful, right? Yeah. If you think you're the president as, you know, the, the bully pulpit and the persuader in chief and all this other stuff, they can do that. But Trump has spent two years basically just bending truth to whatever he wants. And so I think the ability to throw stories or statistics or something compelling out there has been frittered away by him, right? And that's kind of, I think that's the point that Frum was making. And so a different president in that position making this plea, citing statistics might have persuaded a few people, but Trump has been so, uh, you know, just whatever, just kind of loose with the truth. That's how I'll say it. Um, Right. And I think the, the my reading of this there is there's not necessarily a crisis at the border right now i mean you, you know there's it's a word a 45 year low for border crossings you know he was talking about heroin last night all the heroin nick that's coming into the country it sounds like almost all the heroin is coming through legal ports right where it's right. being smuggled in this way um and you know certainly there are crimes committed by immigrants when they're in the United States, but at a lesser rate than American citizens. So, you know, whether it's a dire crisis, I, I don't think that's the case. Maybe given the refugee situation, maybe that would amount to a crisis, but I, it just doesn't feel to me like there's political capital here to make that argument to persuade the American public. If there was another caravan, you know, then maybe he's in a better position. Which but he, even needs, a he needs a caravan. Yeah, yeah I even, think there's another one forming as we, as yes. we speak. But even then, the argument that this is a national emergency, a crisis, we have to act now, here's the plan that will build a wall over six years, is right. sort of undermined, right? Yeah. This idea that we have to do something right now, it's dire. Well, and, um, and the $5.7 billion doesn't complete the wall. Right. I mean, if you're talking about a, a massive wall, that's billions and billions and billions of dollars and time. He's not getting that. My guess is he wants to get this, you know, basically $6 billion build a section of the wall for political purposes and say, I built the wall, and then he leaves it at that. I, I think some of this is an empty argument from him. Well, and can we like, also, I feel like we should talk a little bit about how there have been a number of you know people who have talked this week about this, about how the wall, I, the whole idea of the wall began as a campaign thing. It was it was a, a mnemonic for Trump yes. that his 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 advisors kept telling him, talk about the wall. Well, our not listeners may not know this. Cared, what? Explain. The listeners may not know about this. So, yeah, what, so, so yeah. um, when <laughs> Trump was campaigning, crazy. when Trump was running for president, the, his advisors around him basically had discovered that immigration in general was a winning issue for him. So the way that they could get him to remember that and to talk about it, this very complex issue, was the wall. So you, you just talk about you throw the wall out in a campaign speech. That was something Trump could talk about and could. And they never, they never, the intention was never to build a wall. It was just a tool to help Trump remember to talk about immigration <laughs> in speeches. But since <laughs> then Trump has like latched onto it as this physical thing. So Me like the wall. So it's, a, it's a weird like evolution Jesus. of the idea of the wall. Yes. I, I, I mean, this is the thing. Like, I, I, if you're under the impression that a wall is going to solve this problem, then you need to have a discussion with somebody else or look yeah. at yourself in the mirror for a, a good long while. But there is... We've talked about it before. There is something to this issue. There is a huge influx of people that are crossing the southern border, illegally or legally, that we cannot take on at this point. There was one, there was an AP story about one particular um, uh, charity group in California that had housed 4,000 people since late October at a cost of $350,000 a month hotel rooms, food, all that stuff, just to take care of them. And that was not even at the peak of the immigration, um, uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, this particular, whatever, event. Yeah. Um, 
that's a pro- it's it becomes a logistics problem at some point. You cannot effectively and efficiently process these people if there are so many people that it floods the system. And then you have stories where uh, ICE and, and uh, the Border Patrol are just dumping people in El Paso and other states in the Southwest just at bus stops with nowhere to go, sure. no support whatsoever, because there's just not there there aren't enough resources to take care of all of these people but it's important to note that some of this is a refugee crisis right so you've got these asylum seekers that are trying to get into the united states and i would agree with that that is a genuine crisis some of that is of trump's own making he was the one that decided to make it more difficult to get into the country to have everybody hang out in mexico that addition you know creates additional crimes to process individuals so He's there is a, a nugget of truth when Trump says there's a humanitarian crisis at the border, but some of that is because of the policies he's pursued on asylum, which makes it more difficult, uh, you know, as opposed to like the the random or the previous way that asylum was handled. I mean, even before this was happening, it, they were saying it was taking up to two years to process an asylum request. Yeah. How the hell do you do that with tens of thousands of additional people on top of the normal people that are requesting asylum on a yearly basis? You let them in, right? And that was part of the critique is that they were allowed to be in the United States until their asylum case was heard. Sure, which a lot of them just kind of fade into the system. Well, they're being detained, but you can only hold people for a certain amount of time, especially underage individuals, which I think is 72 hours, and then they have to be released. How do you handle that? Where do they go? How do you take care of all those travel arrangements? How do you make sure that there's somewhere they have the resources to take care of themselves until whatever amorphous date that they have? The system is not built for this, which goes back to who should be requesting asylum at this point. Mm -hmm. Again, something that we've talked about several times. Is it you know economic disparity is it you know gang violence because if we, I, I i don't know how broad you make the definition to make it still mean something and yeah. I, every everybody can't be a refugee uh, seeking asylum there has to be some sort of cutoff and i i i, I don't yeah. know no. it, you know. I, you're not There's wrong a, nick and a wall i know solve, i'm not a wall will not solve that though <laughs> well that's where you get into the argument of if we're going to spend five billion dollars on this and take six years in five six years with five billion dollars you can train more people to actual process the asylum claims sure. and to actually ramp up the system and then people aren't having to wait two and a half years people can arrive right. apply for asylum get an answer very quickly and you know if they get denied they get sent away which does away with some of the incentives for people to come and mm-hmm. apply for asylum because there's a long process and so it's you know it's there there is a, an issue it needs to be addressed and the idea that that it's become so focused on this one thing that it's a, a wall or nothing is um yeah disappointing so, so should we transition <laughs> to the the media coverage because i think this is kind of an interesting question of oh God. of whether the the major networks, broadcast networks, should have covered this. And, and for a little bit of background, in 2014, Obama wanted to give uh, an Oval Office address on immigration, and the news network said, no, it's too political, we're not going to let you have that space. He was boring, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then, so they hemmed and hawed about this, yeah. and they ultimately decided that they would allow Trump to have airspace. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some behind-the-scenes conversations among the networks saying we have to be united in this uh but i i'm not sure whether this is one that they should have granted i understand why they said yes because if they say no they're going to get hammered as biased and partisan 
But this was clearly, to Phil, as you noted earlier, this was clearly a political speech and not a particularly good one at that. Yeah, I mean, I, this this was uh, <laughs> this is something that a, a a politician would normally have to pay to run for airtime, right? Like, you, I have an ad supporting a policy, I'm going to run it. And he got free ad time to to push for a policy that he supports. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of I I don't I don't know. I go back and forth. Um, I don't think that they nece- I don't necessarily think they should have run it, but there's an argument to the idea that when the president asks for airtime, you give it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's obviously limits to that, right? If Trump was asking every night to be on the air for 30 minutes, there you would say, well, that's not appropriate. Yeah. And so how do you find that balance? Which he's not, right? I mean, uh, this is the first time he's done this. Right. Yeah. right. I think that's the thing that, that comes, that the fact that he hasn't, that this is the first time he's sought to do this, that to, to do a, 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 you know, a nationwide broadcast in prime time, and that this is what he chose to do it on mm. and about is um, uh, telling. So, I, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't think they should have done it in line with, the, you know, not giving it to Obama. Um, but, you know, it's also their call. So, you know, yeah. it's their, their, their TV, I mean, their, their station, they get to make that decision. And so they, they made that decision, I guess. I, I do think they're afraid. I think that mm-hmm. the media is afraid of being perceived as biased. Yep. Um, and so the fear that conservatives would be pissed was enough to do it. And that's a pressure that doesn't necessarily go in the opposite direction with yeah. the media. I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. They're afraid, Nick. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing that passed this week is we, I read a couple of them in the intro. Trump had three tweets in a row a couple days ago. Where, I mean, he calls the news the fake news media, which he's done all the time. It's it's the real opposition party. They're crazed lunatics. Uh, they're totally dishonest media concerning me and my presidency. It's never been worse. Uh, I mean, this and, and there was very little discussion of this. And, and Nick, you keep I always I always think of your prison analogy that we've just gotten used to Trump world. And I really think this is a great example of that, where he leveled an attack on the media that I can't think any other president in history made or would make and we kind of go like oh yeah that's right he's given the speech you know on on Tuesday or whatever it is it's it's stunning that this is not even getting any more discussion <sighs> yeah <laughs> so I, I don't know I I tend to going back to the the actual speech I I tend to think that presidents should be allowed uh, time on the networks uh, again as long as they're not abusing the privilege mm-hmm. uh, regardless of political party regardless of what the speech is the supposed to the speech yeah, yeah. Um, having said that um, in terms of media coverage a lot of the response that I've seen uh, both from major news outlets and you know smaller independent quote unquote uh, internet news outlets is um you know, the uh, networks and major news outlets caved to uh, show parody uh, from uh, both sides for both sides of the political spectrum, which I, I understand. But at the same time, I just it, I don't know, man, find something else to complain about. I, I, I'm so <laughs> fucking tired of reading these stories about how one side is fucking over the other. I, I I'm I'm just, yeah. I'm just tired. <laughs> Phil Phil do you so think do you do you, you, no. you didn't say do you think that they should have carried it then Bill? I I understand why they did, but I think they shouldn't have. I I, I think that, 
he is so loose with the truth. And the way, the compromise that they seem to come to is that we're going to air this and then we're going to fact check him live. Well, if we've reached the point where we're fact checking the president because we don't trust anything he does, this felt like a moment where the, the networks, and I think they would have had to done it in coordination to say, we're not going to give you this space for this clearly political message. And I, I think you're right, Nick. In general, I would always defer to say if the president wants airtime, you give it to him. But I think this was a chance for the media finally to have some backbone and say, I know we're going to take heat for this, but the president needs to be honest, the president needs to be truthful, and we are not a political megaphone for him. You know, and and they, they caved. Um, well, and, and it, I don't I guess the other part for me is that it's not a yes or no black or white thing. Right. Like it, they could have said to it's not that he either gets a primetime Oval Office broadcast or nothing. Right. They could have said, look, uh, you know, you're the president. We're going to talk about this. This is obviously an issue that you want to talk about. We could we'll put you on our Sunday morning show. Right. Mm -hmm. Where you actually have a conversation with a journalist. We can you know, we'll, we'll bring your people in if you think it's important and you want to push this policy. There are lots of ways to do it. But. We're not going to let you, you know, make a national emergency broadcast about a political issue that you find important. But why would he do that if he has the opportunity to speak directly to the American people as opposed to try and wade through realistically politicized questions that are created by networks that don't like him in the first place? As we've seen with him and members of the administration, they just they don't like any of that. Mm -hmm. and I, I, regardless of what you think, you know, if they're lying or you know they're just assholes there's i can understand the the need or want to bypass that to attempt to make your point because attempting to go down the other road is equally as political um just you know it's giving more of an opportunity for the opposition to color it with you know their their own perspective whether you agree with it or not and realistically it may be getting to the core or the heart of the issue with them asking questions but i think there's enough doubt in everyone's mind at this point to not trust that perspective either i well, mean no, that's I, my I, that's my perspective i totally understand why trump would want to bypass that process but that's where the the i think you know i it would have been you can like you were saying bill you could this is a chance for them to have a, a, a backbone right i mean this is where the media like it doesn't not the media, a given network, NBC could have said, uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're more than glad to have you on, you know, you, you're wanting to talk about a political issue, a policy issue, we'll have you on our Sunday morning policy show where mm -hmm. you can talk about that, but we're not going to give you the opportunity just to, to do that. I mean, that's, so yeah, I mean, it makes sense why Trump would prefer to do the, the evening primetime broadcast, but that doesn't, his ability to do that is dependent on the media letting him do it uh, okay well okay in the in the sense of the media allowing him to do it at that point where does that stop what do we deem political and apolitical at that point i mean we had you know nixon talking about policies during the vietnam war that realistically were bold-faced lies and were purely political i like what how do we draw that line at this point if networks start going we're just not going to put it out there because we don't think you're telling the truth Regardless of what's happening right now, what if that's not the case in the next administration? What if Fox News or, or, or other outlets say we're not going to put, you know, a, a Democratic address on because we don't think you're telling the mm -hmm. truth? I, I personally think it's easier for all the networks to put it out there and then debate the efficacy of doing it yes, afterwards. That's a good point. Yeah, yep. it, absolutely. Yes. Uh, but it, they still it's still 
that's the easy out for the networks though, right? They're not making a hard choice. It allows the president to then abuse the system. They're, you know, Trump is forcing the network's hand. He, I mean, this is, this is about domestic politics, right? This is about a, a campaign pledge to build a wall. That's all he wants is to be able to run in 2020 to say, I built a section of the wall. And so, and that's what this is all about. He doesn't care about the crisis. He doesn't care about the national security interests of the country. And, and the, the networks know this. And they caved. Uh, so I think you're right, Nick, that there are real legitimate questions about when and, and you don't. And so that's why they say yes all the time. But this strikes me as an instance where they could have said, uh, no, you've gone too far. And they did it with Obama. But they yeah. were afraid with Trump because they knew how Trump was going to respond. Sure. It's a, it's a hard line to figure out, right? So uh, you can picture going down the continuum, right? If it were, uh, if this were, uh, you know, October of 2020 and Trump wanted to do a nationwide address to basically say, vote Trump because I'm better than the other guy, that would be an easy, like, no, that's political, that's not. Um, if Trump wanted to give a speech, uh, you know, a broadcast now, essentially attacking Mueller, right? He just wanted to go and talk about how Mueller's terrible. That's less obviously political but still pretty obviously yeah, political right. right and then the wall thing is further down the spectrum and so where do you how do you you know at what point do you get to you know you could argue that oh barack obama going on the air doing a speech about how he killed osama bin laden is political mm -hmm. in some way yeah. right it makes him look good so finding that line is is hard yeah but we shouldn't run away from the fact that he gave that speech last night and that meant that we led with that story today on on this you know fantastic podcast nick <laughs> We knew that we had to start with it, yes. Instead of starting with, you know, the whole story about Paul, Paul we'll get to Paul Manafort, you know, giving away uh, polling data. That, that arguably could have been the big story of the week. Uh, but instead, we talked about Trump's speech because he got it on the air. Right, but we're talking about yeah, it. We're, nobody's making a decision All about right. it for us, as opposed to us not having the information and not knowing what he said. Regardless, again, regardless yeah. of what you think that he said or agree with it or not, he's still the president. And you, you want to talk about the security and um, uh, stability of institutions. I don't really care who's in the office at this point. I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but I want to hear what he says so I can then create a counterpoint to it, which I think a lot of people have done. And the people who are saying you know, the, the major networks cave to this, I think, are being ridiculous. The information is there. He wants to put it out there. Let him put it out there, and we will debate it because that's what we do as American citizens. We don't compartmentalize the information and not allow it to be out there. That I, seems ridiculous. I love when you talk about institutions, Nick, I and try. respecting institutions. <laughs> Suzanne would be so happy. <laughs> So I, we were, we're, it's about time to move on. Yeah. Right? But I guess, uh, do you think it was effective? No. Do you think it will, you don't no. think it accomplished? No, I don't think no, effective. No, it was, I mean, the, <laughs> all of it, the delivery was terrible. I, I, in some ways, I think even the, you know, the Democratic response was, was not particularly effective. Uh, I don't oh. think it moved the needle one way or the other. We'll see. You know, we got to give it a couple days to, to see if anything bubbles up what, from it, but what, I, I don't think so. What's your prediction? How does this end? Like, how soon and how does it end? The shutdown, specifically. Well, I've started hoarding guns um, <laughs> and bottled American. water. Yeah, I am such a good American. I, I think that the, this, the wall conversation is not going to matter. I think what's going to matter is each day this, this 
shutdown gets longer, there are more people. You know, we're talking about people not getting their tax returns. That's uh, going to be We're a talking problem. about uh, social welfare systems, food stamps and whatnot not getting paid. I, I heard a story this morning where air traffic controllers mm-hmm. haven't received a paycheck. We can't mess with that. Those guys are important, right? FDA, food yeah. inspection. So yeah. I like think one out of every like one out of every 350, one out of every 400 Americans who's like out of work because of or not yeah. getting paid because of this. And so that to me, that feels like there could be some serious frustration there right. where and not that the government will initially respond to that. But the press coverage of that is going to be bad. And ultimately, I think the Democratic position of, hey, let's just get the government open and then we can talk about, about a wall. I think that wins out. So how long do you think Trump holds out before he caves on this? God, he's a stubborn little SOB. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, 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 what do you think? You think it could be a while, a couple weeks? I think if it were purely up to Trump, it could last a really long time because yeah. he's gonna get he's gonna get dug in. He's not all that connected to the average working man out <laughs> there. Um, uh, I think that I mean he said this week, right? He would go for months or years, yeah, years. <laughs> to to win this battle. Um, but I think that uh, the Republicans in Congress are going to, and and the people around him, are are going to end up pushing him to 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 cave yeah. on this. So I I, hmm, I don't know. I I think there's a fifty percent chance by the time we're back next week, the government's reopened. Yeah, that seems reasonable. And the, we have to remember Trump's history. He's lost a lot of times and still declared victory. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. he loves doing that. He loses court cases and comes out and says, we were victorious. Yeah. So he, losing isn't a big deal for him. No, again, both sides are going to claim victory in this when it's eventually yeah. done. And the other side caved in some respect. Yeah. So nothing good is going to come out of this whatsoever. <laughs> good parting thoughts. Yep. All right, Phil, why don't you start us to talk about some beer? Uh, so, yeah, so I, you know, sometimes um, with my beer selection, sometimes I just grab stuff at the grocery store or whatever's in my <laughs> in my fridge. But then sometimes I'm smart and I go down to the beer place here in Keene to Brutopio where um, he hooks me up with good stuff. Uh, and I went down there today and he gave me this uh, beer. It's from Bissell Brothers, which is out of Portland, Maine. I have, I have not had one of their beers before. This one's called Reciprocal. Um, it's a, an IPA. Um, canned. The reason you were looking at me weird when I was looking at the bottom yeah. of the can, it was canned four days ago. It's like oh, fresh wow. as can be. Um, and I don't think this is, I, from what he was telling me, I, you can get this on tap, but you can't get the cans unless you go to the place. Um, and this was, it was great. It was great. It was, you know, the, it's, um, you know, small local place. It does, it, you like smell it and it's like, I don't know about this. <laughs> the smell doesn't really get me going. But then it's, um, you know, it's an IPA. It's hoppy. It's got that. It's super cloudy, but it's real citrusy, grapefruity. Um, it's not like hit you over the head with hops. It's it was it's just really good. It looks really like good. a Coke can. Like, I was going to say. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. So Nick and I, we've had some listeners who've asked us to, to if we've ever had zombie dust. Who had really? Yeah. Come on, it's, people. It's so, so we've had zombie Jesus. dust. Jesus. But. Just to, to kind of return, to think we've, we've tried a lot of other IPAs and a lot of other beers. To kind of put zombie dust in perspective, we once again had some zombie dust. Mm-hmm. Nick, now that you've your palate has been so sophisticated and you've tried different beers, where is zombie dust fitting these days? So, we were talking about this. Realistically, zombie dust was like the first, at least in, in my memory, was like that first real like really good craft beer that everybody had to have and it was really hard to find um and it was it was good yeah. when you actually got it it was really 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 good um 
as you said, we've tried a lot of different things on this podcast. The more that we try and the more kind of different, you know, flavor combinations and, and styles that we try, this doesn't hold as much appeal as it used to for me. The others have caught up. Yeah, I, I think that's, a lot. Because yeah, yeah. I, I, I can, there are definitely things that I would rather have than this right now. Not that it's bad by any yeah. means, but it's, yeah, it, it feels... It feels kind of it's normalized. Yeah. It's it's pedestrian. just it's very pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you, it's still a wonderful beer. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Trying lots of other really good beers, you start to think like, well, that's a good one. But but Zombie Dust was it was so far ahead of the pack, and now I felt the same way. It's a good beer. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But it, it isn't as special as it once was. Yeah. It's yeah. um. I I don't know. I don't know if it's it just it seems a little bitter now. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like the the hoppiness is is there, but there's nothing to counter it with the bitterness. And yeah, there's you in your. Oh. I just you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, expand your minds. Check out what we've tried on Untapped because uh, there are lots of good things on there. So yeah, you know, expand your horizons a little that's bit. Good. Lots good. of good stuff. Yeah. Speed round. I'm excited about our first topic on speed round. So, all right. Last week, Trump convened a 90-minute uh, cabinet meeting in front of the cameras. While Trump spent most of his time making the case for his wall, he did briefly dip into the cold into Cold War history, a favorite topic for us here at Barstool Politics. Specifically, Trump weighed in on the Soviet invasion of Russia in 1979 and provided a rather unconventional historical account. Phil? You said Soviet invasion of Russia. It was the Soviet invasion oh, of Afghanistan. Oh, typo. <laughs> Good catch. Oh, that's this is, how this is, that happened. This is why we're experts. Yeah. <laughs> Soviet invasion of <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Good catch. Uh, so Trump suggested that the Soviets invaded Afghanistan because terrorists were going into Russia. And then he shocked everybody by endorsing the Soviet invasion. Nick, this one is way better when you hear it directly. So let's go to the tape. Oh, God, I forgot it's, about it's, the tape. Hold the tape on, let me get so the good. tape. The tape. Yeah. Uh, let me put that down a little bit. Russia used to be the Soviet Union. Afghanistan made it Russia. Because they went bankrupt fighting in Afghanistan, Russia. The reason Russia was in, in Afghanistan was because terrorists were going into Russia. They were right to be there. The problem is it was a tough fight. And literally, they went bankrupt. They went into being called Russia again, as opposed to the Soviet Union. You know, a lot of, a lot of these places you're reading about now are no longer part of Russia because of Afghanistan. <laughs> Jeez. They, right. uh, they went bankrupt, uh, <laughs> couldn't afford the trademark, so they had to change the name to Russia. So, so Trump gets a lot of the history wrong here, and we can talk about that. But here's why I think this is so interesting. Trump is essentially all alone in this interpretation. The defeat of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan was a historic bipartisan victory for the United States. The only other individual who embraces this version of history is, wait for it, Vladimir Putin. It's got to be right. I know. Phil, for the life of me, I can't figure out why Trump would do this. Even if Putin had whispered this in his ear during a quiet moment in Helsinki, he's got to know the danger of repeating it. What, what's going on? So I, he doesn't have to know the danger of repeating it. He's making shit up as he talks, right? Like he's the, the, the importance, the significance of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to him is like nothing, right? Like he doesn't give a shit about it. He doesn't know anything about it. It's not been a part of his life. And so I think he just assumes that that's true for everyone else, right? <laughs> for the rest of the world. So I don't, I don't think that this is again, a strategic move. I don't, 
I, but I somebody don't, I mean, had to plant he... the idea in his head, though, right? Where right. does he get this? Because nobody in his administration would think this. You know, if we asked John Bolton, he wouldn't say this. The only one who's got this idea now is this Putin and this revisionist history. Well, I mean, that's okay. It's all nonsense. So, I mean, the the reason I I don't want to give it too much weight because it's all nonsense anyway, right? I mean, he basically (laughs) is saying they were right to be there. They were fighting terrorists and the invasion was good. But at the same time, it's also what destroyed the Soviet Union, right? right? So it was good. It was right. Also, it was the worst thing they've ever done. Like, even in the logic of it, it makes no sense what he's saying. Um, I mean, he's just using it to, uh, I, my guess, my thought would be, again, he's he just makes shit up as he goes. So at some point in some meeting and talking about withdrawing from Syria, somebody around him said, you know, you don't want to get bogged down in these things. Look what happened to the Soviet Union. And that sticks. Mm. And then in this moment, he's like, look at the Soviet Union. They were there for the right reason, but it ended them. Like he he just, I just don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm reluctant to give it too much significance, but it is an insane thing for a sitting president (laughs) to say. It is insane. Nicholas. It's uh, no, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. Um, the more likely scenario is he has no fucking idea what he's talking about uh, and probably heard this in passing and was stringing some different thoughts together to make some semblance of a coherent statement. Um, I I do think that there's... (laughs) What's interesting about Trump is he, he provides a good insight into some segment of our society in the sense that I think there are there's a good portion of Americans who do think the narrative of the Soviet Union, especially in the context of, you know, post 9-11 invasion of Afghanistan, that kind of stuff. The narrative was the Soviets did this a long time ago, uh, fighting, you know, different elements within the country. And it was severely costly and they had to abandon their their efforts in, in doing so. And that eventually led to their downfall. And that was the narrative that a lot of people, I think a lot of people still believe right now. Um, There's not, (laughs) that's not really the story at all. Um, So kind of going back to the original point, I just don't think he has any idea what the fuck he's talking about because he hasn't opened a book. Like most of the people who think that. I think you're both wrong. (laughs) Okay. So I I think that's, I think you're offering too benign of an explanation, right? I, I, for me, there's two reasons. One, it's, it's entirely possible he's confused Afghanistan and Chechnya. So, af- Hold Af- on. What? You think he... All right. Let's really break this down a little bit here. You think he knows no, no, what no, Chechnya... No, okay. No. All right. All right. And somebody mentioned Chechnya at okay. some point. So, because here's the thing. In 79, <laughs> terrorists were not attacking Russia from Afghanistan. That right. wasn't happening at all. But in 99, in Chechnya, there were terrorists who potentially were attacked or were alleged to have attacked Russia. So that's that's the more innocent explanation. I tend to think the specificity of it. I mean, he's he's going back to Afghanistan. He's talking about the invasion, all of that, and the fact that it was the right thing to do. It's too much detail to just randomly be wrong. I think somebody, whether it's Putin or somebody, whispered this in his ear. I really, I really do. And it doesn't mean he's being blackmailed for it, but it, it could have that that could have been a conversation he and Putin had. <laughs> I could see that. 
that conversation? Because Putin, no. Putin's argument right now is he's trying to revisit this uh, moment in Soviet history mm-hmm. to say that this wasn't such a terrible thing, uh, that the Soviet Union, the demise was was terrible, that they were a great nation. Um, so it does feel to me like th- there's so much detail here that it doesn't seem random to me. And certainly, certainly Trump and Putin have had conversations about Syria or yeah. or Trump, people in Trump's orbit and people in Putin's orbit have had conversations about Syria because this, this is a place where Russian interests and the U.S. interests are impacting. And so this is coming up in response to that. So I, I could see some conversation either between the two of them or between people close to them in which a Russian official is saying to the U.S., yeah. you know, look what happened to us when we got over involved in the Middle East or whatever. Exactly. It's either a totally random reaction, like a reflex machine where some Afghanistan popped in his head, or it's a talking point that Putin gave him, and for some reason he's repeating. And that, to me, is a bit more disturbing. That seems like I, such a specific thing for Putin to bring up. He brings up the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I'm, I'm so happy, Nick, because no, normally we can never talk about the Cold War. <laughs> so it's there's I don't know. I, I'm... I, Reluctant to just let it go. <laughs> the thing, the thing where your theory and our theory intersect is that someone around Trump mentioned this. Yes, Trump yeah. doesn't have an understanding of it and is and is respouting it out without mm-hmm. that understanding. Yeah. Thanks for entertaining me on this one. This was this was fun. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yes. All right, let's jump to Syria. So new developments on the Syrian withdrawal. As you all remember, on December nineteenth, Trump tweeted that ISIS had been defeated. in in Syria, and that all the troops, they're all coming back, and they're all coming back now. After some backlash, Trump extended his initial 30-day deadline to four months, and then backed away even from that, saying, I never said fast or slow. This week on a visit to Israel, National Security Advisor and awesome mustache owner John Bolton stated that our withdrawal from Syria would only occur once very specific policy objectives were met. One of which was that Turkey agreed to protect Kurdish fighters that had been working with the U.S. in the fight against ISIS. A request that Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said was a serious mistake and then snubbed Bolton on his visit to Turkey. Yeah, snubs are the best. Phil, it appears that forces around Trump, most specifically John Bolton, have pulled Trump away from his initial decision. Should we understand this as cooler heads prevailing or foreign policy chaos? I'll go back to an old favorite on the podcast, which is that two things. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, this is an example of people around Trump prevailing over a, a decision made on a whim. Um, but I think that is chaos, right? That is foreign policy chaos. It's not that Trump is talking to his advisors. He's declaring policy and then having to walk it back. or And, and that in and of itself, when you can't when you can't trust the the tweet <laughs> the word <laughs> of the american president the when the president is tweeting stuff and then backing away from it i mean that this is the whole idea when the the idea historically has been that when the president speaks you can you there's there's credibility behind what they say and i and i think the fact that there isn't that credibility is a recipe for foreign policy chaos so i do you think that john bolton or others around him convinced him of or inserted that stipulation about Turkish protection of Kurdish fighters, knowing that that meant that U.S. troops would never be able to withdraw. Like they, they say to Trump, we can do it, but as long as Turkey agrees to protect and, and Trump's like, that's fine. And knowing that 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 condition will never be met. I think so. What do you think? Dave? I don't know. I think yeah. it's more of an optics thing than anything. They were already starting to get some bad press in regards to to the Kurds uh, in Syria. And I think this was enough to kind of 
you know, at least on, uh, on the surface, placate the people uh, who would, you know, really kind of go after them about this particular decision, which is a horrible decision in my opinion. The, the initial withdrawal. Uh, yeah. Or, the, or no, you like the withdrawal, right? You thought I it was, don't necessarily think yeah. the withdrawal is a bad idea. And realistically, I, there's no way that you can immediately withdraw troops from that kind of theater uh, as quickly as he's talking about. It's just, it's logistically impossible. So I'm assuming the the discussion was, yeah, we can talk about this. Uh, we got to get some shit done before we can even attempt to get all of the troops out of there. And there are some other concerns. And he said, all right, whatever. Yeah. Know, just kind of do that. But um, considering that this was uh, put at the feet of Turkey, I, I don't. Nobody, nobody should be under the assumption that Turkey is going to do anything about this because they despise the Kurds. Yeah. Um, I, I, pers- I still think it's more of an optics thing than anything. I think the the diplomacy of John Bolton is interesting here. It's not not with Turkey, but with the president, because he. I think you're right, Phil. He, I, I don't get the sense he wanted to get out of Syria, and he found a way to get us to stay. And the other day, Trump tweeted some sort of craziness out about, you know, he was attacking the New York Times and he said, I never said I was going to get out quickly or whatever it was. And then John Bolton retweeted that with a comment and said, I completely agree, which to me felt like total diplomatic suck up to the president. I mean, you can tell the president that. That is his job. Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) But the fact that you're tweeting it out, Trump will love that. Trump will love that his national security advisor reinforced his point and said, you're right, Mr. President. And then Trump, to Nick's point, probably will say, like, all right, sounds good. Yeah, we can we can stay. It doesn't can, really matter. I can totally picture that. John Bolton taking Trump by the arm and saying, you are absolutely right. Brilliant decision to get our troops out. There's just one small thing. Yeah. We've got to make sure that the Kurds are protected, knowing that Trump would be, like, flattered by the, yeah, you brilliant decision. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're sure if it's a small thing, do it. And Bolton is smart enough to know that it's a, it's a small thing that we'll never get. Yeah, he's not done. a dumb guy. No, he's not. He's he's smart. And so then if if the decision to stay <clears throat> is the right decision, you feel like okay, finally we you know that that cooler heads prevailed, but ultimately you're undermining your president. Right. This isn't this isn't deliberation. It feels like ma- manipulation. We knew that was happening. Like we knew that from But it doesn't uh, make it right, months. Nick. No, it doesn't make it right, but we've known for months that it's members of the administration that are holding real power. Uh, most of them are gone at this point. The but adults there, are gone. Yeah, there was a, a significant attempt to take power away from the president and and put it in the hands of unelected officials that are part of the administration. Um, I don't see a reason why that wouldn't or that would have changed. But it makes me feel better when it's Jim Mattis and uh, John Kelly and Tillerson and and the adults in the room. Who but are you making... like this but decision? That I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the problem of it, though, right? I mean, this is the uncomfortable dilemma of the Trump presidency, yeah. right? You, the the problem with you were more comfortable with Mattis and them is that they're not elected, right? Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. don't have a say in who those people are. The person you have a say in is the president, and right. and he has been elected. And so the idea of unelected people you know manipulating him is is yeah i mean it's it is the uncomfortable aspect of it is that in this particular situation um it's it's something that makes me feel better but in general the idea of unelected leaders making policy is deeply disconcerting because there will be other decisions that have to be made and knowing that those decisions will be made by john bolton and stephen miller right that worries me a bit yeah i mean he did he did okay here. he did he, he, he did it. okay Okay. Give, give him that. All right. Be nice to him. I'm, I'm excited about this he next one. He has that Nick. great mustache. Just he does. Yeah. <laughs>
All right. Paul Manafort. Jesus. We, we now know precisely what Paul Manafort was lying about to special counsel Robert Mueller. And we know this because his lawyers are idiots and don't know how to cut and paste correctly. Specifically, Manafort's lawyers failed to redact important details in a court filing on Tuesday. Those sections of a document revealed that Paul Manafort is being charged with lying about sharing 2016 <coughs> campaign polling data with Konstantin Kalimnik, an associate who has ties to Russian intelligence organizations, the GRU. In fact, Kalimnik's nickname is the GRU guy, which I love more than anything. The fact that his name is the GRU guy, for, the Gru guy. For our Gru listeners, guy. the GRU is the is the KGB. Guy. Yeah, correct. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Phil, you're Instagram friends with all kinds of Russians. Especially, <laughs> especially the Gru. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> what should we make of the fact that Trump's campaign chairman was sharing internal polling data with a Russian intelligence officer? Seems legit, right? Yeah, straight up. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't have any problems. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> oh, good, because I didn't start the clock anyways. <laughs> There's all sorts of aspects to this, right? And let me just kind of touch on a, a couple of them, and then you two can can uh, jump in. We, you know, we've talked about why did Manafort not, you know, strike a deal earlier, or why was he holding out for a pardon? And we talked about well, maybe the concern wasn't, uh, you know, Trump or wasn't other people. The KGB, right? He was doing. Yes. He was dealing with the KGB. You don't mess with them. So the idea that he wouldn't cave and, and confess things in court. The, the, this is, these are the people who make you know random dissidents show up with polonium poisoning yeah. in, in London, right? So um, yeah, it's, it's, this is not something you take lightly. Turning on the the Gru in court. Um, <laughs> turning on the Gru in court. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other part. I mean, this is this is where we're so deep in Trump world, right? Where you know, I, I saw. Um, who was it? I saw an interview this week where they were talking. I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about, um, you know, whether Democrats were going to like push impeachment um, now that they control the the House. And and the idea was Democrats have decided they've been very specific. They they're not talking impeachment. They don't want to be perceived as having gone you know like foredrawn conclusions or foregone conclusions about the Mueller report. So they're holding off. They don't want to say we should impeach him. And then the report comes out and they're like, we should impeach him. And everyone's like, you had already decided that. But the irony of that is that there's a shitload of evidence that this, that, that I mean, this is, you know, this is um, collusion, people, conspiracy. Right. This yeah. is collusion, right? I mean, we've had now multiple official court documents that link the Trump administration or the Trump campaign to Russians. It, it's weird the extent to which this is now, this now in a lot of ways seems like, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, yeah. I mean, so he shared internal data with Russians. This is the sort of stuff that like four years ago would have been yeah. like groundbreaking, immediate, like huge. And and we've just gotten so used to it that yeah, okay. That's such a good point, Nick. Mm -hmm. You never share polling data. <laughs> <laughs> Only with people that I think can help me with something. <laughs> the Russians are really good at that. Yes. Um, Paul Manafort's just a piece of shit. Like, we want to talk about the Trump administration and Trump himself and what role he played in all of this. You know, I, I'll wait for the Mueller, Mueller investigation to be completed before making any particular decision. But I know for a fact Paul Manafort is a piece of shit. <laughs> and he should definitely go away. I, just, It's just so blatant. Everything that he's done has been just... You, you, he's clearly someone who has never had to face consequences for anything and has no concept that 
there are things that you can't kind of weasel your way out of. And I'm really, really glad that he's being held accountable for this stuff. We'll see if it goes up to Trump. I'm still very skeptical that there's going to be a direct link to him with any of this information. Um, take down everybody around him. I don't give a shit. If, if, you, if you have information like this, I have no problem with the investigation. Yeah. And if it, if, if it leads directly to him. It is extremely blatant. So to think otherwise that there isn't a concerted effort to do something that is highly dubious as as to motive, um, I I just don't know how you could think anything else. I think if if we step back, we now can say fairly certainly that... Or they're dumb. One of the (laughs) three. There, There was collusion or conspiracy between the campaign... And the Russians, because mm-hmm. the campaign chairman is sharing internal polling data. Now, whether that means the president was aware of this or not, we don't know with certainty yet. I think there's a, well, I guess here's the question: was was Manafort doing this because he was worried about the GRU and 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 their attacks on his family or something, and not sharing that with Trump? Or did Trump know? And we'll find that out eventually. Either way, the campaign was colluding with Russia. And the next question is, did the president know about that? But yeah, this is this is the biggest story of the week. Uh, it's it, it's dramatic. It does feel like we have like a thousand piece puzzle and yeah. like 950 of the pieces are together. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. We don't have the final ones. But when you look at it, it's I mean, again, it's it's not just this. It's not just that Manafort shared internal polling data with the GRU. It's that. We know that the Russians reached that Russians reached out to the campaign and set up meetings and yeah. offered you know information on Hillary Clinton and others. We know of these ties between WikiLeaks and Russia. Yes. We know like this puzzle this puzzle is put together, right? The only thing that's missing is that little centerpiece, yeah. which is what how much did Trump know about it? Yes. And that's where I mean we don't know. You got to figure that Mueller does know yeah. or is putting it together and it's just hard to imagine. Trump runs in such close knit a close knit circle, right? The handful of people that he talks to, the fact that Kushner and his son and Manafort were so clearly in on these conversations, the idea that Trump wouldn't know, is almost inconceivable to me. Well, the other thing we didn't talk about is Vezel Niskaya, this woman, this this woman who brought the information in the infamous Trump Tower meeting. She was indicted this week on some entirely other crime of colluding uh, to. It, it, and the point of that crime is that the, the prosecutors are saying that she's high up in the Russian administration because she's got access to these high levers of power. And if she's got that connection, it's really deeply troubling if she's also meeting with Trump campaign officials in uh, in Trump Tower. So this, again, you're right, Phil, we're not fully there, but the pieces are starting to fall in place. There's this whole thing when, when Veselnitskaya or when the Russians reached out to Trump Jr., Trump Jr. instantly called a blocked number uh, and then called them back. And we still don't know who the blocked number is. And I mean, it's just like we're so close. Yeah. It's a little bit like it's a little bit like our puzzle is of a dog and the whole dog is there except for the eyeball. Yes, and everyone's like, yes. until that eyeball's in place, we don't know if it's a dog right. or not. But it's a, it's a dog. Yeah. It's a dog. Right. And, and the pace of it makes it all very difficult because it's it's little drip by drip. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Let's let's move on to the. Supreme Court. So, all right. In Supreme Court news, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg missed a second straight day of oral arguments. Ginsburg, who's 85, Nick, 
Wow. Gross. Is still recovering from surgery last month to remove two cancerous nodules from her lung. She would still be able to vote on cases by reviewing the transcripts of oral, oral arguments. Ginsburg has survived other bouts of cancer, which never caused her to miss, miss oral arguments. And when she broke ribs, she also was there, too. Uh, the background noise you all hear is liberals all over the country panicking about the prospect of Ginsburg having to retire from the court for health reasons. Phil, at 85 and in compromised health, there is no guarantee that Ginsburg can serve out this term. If she has to retire, that would give Trump another appointment and the prospect of a 6-3 Supreme Court. Thoughts, reactions? I mean, I, this is this that would be huge, right? Mm. I mean, this is not the this is not the replacement of a conservative justice with another Trump justice. This is a the, a, the person who is associated with the liberal wing of the court being replaced by a Trump appointee. That that would be significant, right? That would that would seriously alter the 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 sort of framework of the uh, at least the sort of ideological framework of the court for a generation, right? That would be huge. Um, and you know, liberals should be concerned about that. Um, I, I sort of to talk about it in a slightly different way. I feel bad for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has like the whole hopes of the liberal <laughs> yes, order yes. weighing on whether or not like the woman should be allowed to retire <clears throat> yes. and go like, you know, rest and, and live out her life if she wants to. Maybe I mean, she may not want to, but the, it because it feels like so much is weighing on it. It feels like she has no choice but to like through pain and suffering continue to go to work every day. <laughs> is there is there any chance, Phil, you are still going to be working at 85? No way. Which to me, that aspect, the fact that it seems like so much rides on whether or not an 85 year old person with cancer can make it to work or not. That to me is indicative of the extent to which our system is screwed up, right? That's not the way the system should work. And I don't know what that means. You know, there's lots of revisions to how Supreme Court's Supreme Court justices are nominated or named. There are revisions to how we do. There's lots of stuff that could be put in place. But the idea that an unelected 85 year old woman with cancer, whether she lives or dies, is going to have a huge impact on our, our on our democratic system seems problematic. And a reflection of how partisan things have gotten where yeah. it, you know, it didn't used to matter this much. But now, oh, but I, I, does it actually matter or is it our perception that it matters more than it used to? decisions are reflecting a more conservative viewpoint for the court, right? I mean, and I think, and that's just at 5-4, 6-3, I mean, I, I to think... An ex yeah, to yeah. an extent, but realistically, I, I mean, we've had fairly dramatic shifts like this previously yeah. with the Supreme Court. It's not unheard of by any means. I think that, I, I personally think that our, our perception and, and hyper-partisan uh, uh, world that we live in now is... Has has tainted our our understanding of what, you know, the the severity of what this actually means. Um, I, I personally think it won't be as big of a deal as as people think it will be. Um, you know, we we have Tom on fairly I was regularly. You were channeling some Tom yeah. Kavanaugh right now. <laughs> these are these are 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 measured, intelligent people whose responsibility is to interpret the law. Not based on their political leanings, but on the understandability and efficacy of of, of the the law itself, which you know you can debate whether or not uh, the the justices do that um, more than they they 
do uh, from a political perspective, I guess. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not nearly, <clears throat> I guess, coming from a more conservative perspective, I, I would inherently not be as worried. But um, this is one of those particular situations where I think people need to calm the fuck down a little bit. To, to me, the, the I, I think, Phil, you were right. The, the sad element of this is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has to finish this term, no matter what the health consequences. What are they going to do? They're going to pump her full of steroids? Oh, it, Just shove her full if, of stem cells and see what happens? If she can live out the term, she will <clears throat> remain on the court, right? And I think probably that's what she would prefer, too, right? Because the consequences seem so dire, right? And I think the reality is that both political parties see it that way, right? I mean, the Kavanaugh hearing, part of the reason that politics was so crazy, because it was so important uh, to the political outcomes that those court, the court will make. But it's the perceived political outcomes. But I think it's a real, it's a, I mean, they have real consequences, I mean, right? his first decision was realistically not in support of a conservative opinion, was it not, with Planned Parenthood? Yes, but I think over time... These appointees are much more consistent. We know what we're getting. There's less wild. I, sure, cards they here. have leanings. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't I, see them as political actors, but their decisions will be political. I think you're both right. Okay, in good. That, in that, in that I, there's no doubt that more conservative justices shift the general tenor of the decisions that are coming forth. Sure. I think Nick is also right in that replacing. Uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative justice doesn't instantly undo, you know, you know, decades of decision making on the court. Like, I think it will shift things more conservative. I don't know that it is as dramatic as people fear it might be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I find that, like, I think four years ago, my faith in the power of institutions and, and like, you know, the the. The, the court as nonpartisan and the power of institutions in general to maintain things. I, four years ago, I would have been less worried about the situation, but the past two years leave me with all sorts of doubts about the ability of institutions to actually, <laughs> to you know, keep us on the right course or whatever. No, so. I think that's right. That's what, that's my biggest critique of Trump is the way in which he undermines our democratic institutions. So. Yeah. We're going to finish with a fun one, Nick. Okay. Spies. I love spies. We got ourselves a good old spy story, boys. Uh, let's start with a quick review of what's, what's transpired. In late December, Russian authorities detained an American named Paul Whelan, accusing him of being a spy. Whelan is a Canadian-born U.S. citizen. And Already he... suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and a 15-year Marine veteran. His family claims he was visiting Russia for a wedding. Whelan had, in fact, visited Russia many times. Russian authorities, on the other hand, say he was c caught committing espionage, contending he was caught with a flash drive with classified Russian intelligence. Now, Russian uh, Whelan served in the Marines for 15 years, but was then discharged for attempted larceny. Usually, larceny is a deal-breaker for becoming a CIA spy. Some are speculating that Putin grabbed Whelan to use him as a potential spy swap with the U.S. for Maria Butina, who had recently pled guilty to infiltrating America's conservative political movement as a Russian agent. This is a fun little story. Well, except if you're Paul Whelan. All right, Nick, um, <laughs> you noted that you found this story fascinating and shared it with us. Start us off. What's, what's interesting for this about this for you? It's just bizarre. Yes. Like We've heard lots of spy stories over the past couple of years, but this particular one... It seemed originally like it was an American citizen who was in Russia for a wedding and the Russians detained him on some weird trumped up charge. But then it was released that he was dishonorably discharged from the military and he has multiple passports for different countries. He's citizens yeah. of several different countries. 
Um, his family had no idea about why he was discharged from the military, He's apparently, as well. He's got huge debts, apparently. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. But I don't know. You know, you watch movies and you think, okay, he got discharged for larceny. It sounds like something where they could get him out of the system and then make him a spy and no one would think about it. It's, Ooh, that's good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> should write a movie. They'll never suspect it. Um, it's, it's just, it's the the complexness of this particular one that seems just so bizarre to me. And the more you hear about it, the more it sounds like he was not just some innocent person who was there for a wedding. It seems very, I don't know, something's something's up there. They don't just grab random, as much as you'd like to think that they, you know, grab random citizens and try and swap them for intelligence agents, Something seems to be up here. To our listeners, if you're ever in Russia and somebody comes up and Just tries to go. give you a flash drive, yeah. don't take it. Don't take it. <laughs> if they throw it at you, run away. Right. right. <laughs> but what's your sense of all this? I, I, I don't have any clue. Right. Yeah. Like this could nothing in this story. Like whatever the outcome of the story is, nothing would surprise me. Yeah. If if he is a CIA spy, right, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. If mm. the CIA took a guy who had Marine experience and then like some blemish on his record and they're like, we'll take him and give him some other like unseemly things to do. That sounds right. Like that. W- I wouldn't be surprised if Vladimir Putin found a random American going for a wedding and like planted some information on them, arrested them, and accused them of espionage. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me at all <laughs> if both of those were true. Like he is a spy, but then Vladimir Putin arrested him and planted stuff on him to make it even worse. Also, wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Like, no, there's no outcome of this that would surprise me, and that means that I don't, I have, I don't have any sense of, of, like the the what what's actually going on here. I'm so excited to see how the U.S. administration responds to this because whether he's a spy or whether he's not a spy, Putin is going to try to trade him for Marina Botina, who I don't, you guys probably don't follow. Like, Russia on Twitter, they have a bunch of, like, U.S. Embassy accounts. They tweet about her all the time. One of the, one of the Russian accounts, I can't remember if it's for the U.K. or whatever it is, has her picture as their Twitter, you know, handle. So they think about this all the time. They want to get her back. So there's no doubt. That, that, go ahead. Is that because they really care about her, or is that just an attempt to troll Americans? They're very caring people. Yeah, they care. They, they, they want their <laughs> spies back. <laughs> so, uh, they or, just need access to her so they can give her some polonium. Right. She may, have imp- <laughs> <laughs> she may have information that they want back. I don't think they care necessarily about her, but the information that she has. Um, so all of this is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I think how the Trump administration responds will be somewhat telling. Yeah. It's uh, we've seen more and more of this stuff over the past few years, and it seems to kind of showcase the deterioration of, of relations between the U.S. and Russia. Um, it, <laughs> there was um, uh, a story about uh, <clears throat> how we haven't seen this many spy swaps mm-hmm. since, you know, like Gary Powers yeah. uh, and you know Bridge of Spies and all that stuff during the Cold War, and it's it's really fun. I yeah. kind of like. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting. The thing, the U.S. usually, all countries, if the spies usually have, usually are diplomats, because then they're granted diplomatic immunity. So right. when they're busted, they can say diplomatic immunity, and they're just kicked out of the country. Mm-hmm. So if he is a legitimate spy, he's a stupid spy, because he was like, I'll go to Russia without being named as a diplomat. Um, so that, Maybe he's a... The other option in threat is that he's a Russian agent from the beginning. Oh. And then the Russians are throwing him under the bus. Mm. Double agent. He's a patsy? Yeah. Oh, man. Then we shouldn't trade for him anymore. 
<laughs> so, I need that flow chart again. Yes. It's just too many things. There's so many things going on. In a normal week, in non-Trump world, this would be a big story. You know. Yeah, we don't live in that world anymore, which no. is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> this is, these are you, big things. Do you Go think ahead. that like four years or eight years from now when we have a boring president, will, will it just seem boring? Are we ever going to go back to normal? We'll never have a boring president again. Yeah. I, I don't I, think we can take it. I think we will. I think we're going to go back to a boring president. And I think then we can have a normal, reasonable discussion of topics. We won't have to have speed run anymore. We can I don't just know have if it's a, ever possible. Yeah. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. You don't do want that. a world without speed round. No. We'll, start, we'll start drinking tea instead of beer yes. and having civilized conversations oh, about. Oh God! Nick will bring in biscuits. It'll be fantastic. Keynesian oh, economics. Oh, yes. Oh no. no. And, and what the Fed has done lately. <laughs> yes. Oh, interest I, rates. People love interest rates. I hate. I hate. I hate even talking about this. I don't want to speculate. <laughs> That's a good ending, Nick. <laughs> if he goes away, I don't know what the fuck we're gonna talk about. <laughs> um. On that note, um, what was I going to say? Wow, this is a busy week. It was, yeah. <laughs> it's an all, they always busy weeks. Um, if you guys like the podcast, have questions about the podcast, um, comments, anything like that, uh, want us to review a particular beer uh, like we did today, um, hit us up on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, um, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, the podcast. Uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, check out the beers that we try on Untapped. Uh, we are Barstool Politics on there, so look for all of our reviews. Uh, and then uh, Predicted, which if you weren't here at the beginning of the podcast, Predicted is a real money political prediction market, um, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners, uh, if you open up a, uh, an account... Uh, you receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So if you open up a $20 account, uh, Predicted will match that $20, giving you 40 total dollars to awesome. use on Predicted, awesome. which is great. Um, so definitely check it out. Use the uh, promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Anything else, guys? That was, this is a fun one. It was a fun yes. one. We have so much fun all the time. Um, all right. We will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Shut up and sit down.